0: Welcome to the public morality. It seems lawmakers in several state legislatures are waging a legislative war against the LGBTQ community. These bills take on various forms from providing a license to discriminate against LGBTQ people to denying transgender youth access to gender affirming health care or the ability to participate in school sports, to eliminating LGBTQ people from educating curricula and more. Joining me to discuss LGBTQ plus equality is Sherita Gruberg. Gruberg is vice president of LGBTQ plus research and communications at the Center for American Progress. Sherita Gruberg, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you for having me. Let's begin this conversation uh, with a question that uh, has been posed to me over the years. I'm sure you've heard similar. Uh, and it goes something like this. Uh, didn't Obergefell versus Hodges, where the court held a due process clause of the 14th Amendment applies to same gender relationships and thus the right to marry? So didn't that court decision solve issues for LGBTQ plus community? How do you respond to that?
1: I wish it did. Um, The fact of the matter is only about 16% of the LGBTQ community is in a relationship where, um, you know, that's the total of folks in um, in a same partner relationship, most of the community out, and the fact is 29 states don't have state level comprehensive protections against discrimination for LGBTQI plus people. Um, The result is widespread discrimination. Um, Even with last summer's Supreme Court decision expanding, um, workplace protections, the LGBTQI plus community, particularly people of color within it, um, report very high levels of discrimination, poverty, um, and health consequences of a lifetime of discrimination.
0: So, so following up on that, in, in a recent piece that you penned for the Center for American Progress, you wrote, quote, this year, state lawmakers are once again waging an onslaught of legislative attacks against LGBTQ plus, uh, communities. Would you, for our listeners, expand on that statement?
1: Sure. Um, so twenty. 20- 21 was a terrible year in terms of uh, the number of really harmful bills introduced in state legislatures. It was also the first time we saw a bill attacking um, the ability of trans kids to play sports, uh, passing, and 2022 is already bypassing 2021. Um, both in terms of terrible bills introduced, um, but also signed into law.
0: How much of this, in your view, um, in 2022 uh, is, is fueled by the upcoming midterm elections?
1: Oh, 100%. Um, these attacks on trans kids are not things that... Um, are in any way related to actual issues seen in the state. Um, For example, in his veto memo of an attack on um, trans kids playing sports in Utah, the governor of Utah made a point that like this, there's one kid in the state that's going to be targeted by this. So the entire legislature, and then they overruled his veto. And so that amount of focus on one child really indicates there's not a real issue. This is a solution in search of a problem. And that problem is not having a governing agenda to trot out for the midterms, but instead um, really doubling down on this creation of a threat, Um, a threat to the status quo, a threat to comfort. Um, a threat to our entire society. And using that as a talking point to drive your base out to actually vote in a midterm election. Um, some Republican strategists have tried this in different periods of time. For example, in the Kansas governor race, we saw, I'm sorry, the Kentucky governor's race, we saw this coming up, um, it did not work. Uh, We also, in the 2020 election, there were some, uh, there was a couple Republican communication strategy firms that tried uh, to put out this messaging, again, got a little bit more traction, but didn't quite work. And so in the intervening years, they've done a lot of message testing and a lot of um, kind of uh, formulating this idea into a full campaign. And so um, these, and it's not in a vacuum. We're seeing these "don't say gay" curriculum bills, these attacks on CRT, these attacks on trans kids playing sports, packaged and sold to the same by the same organizations to these state legislatures, legislators to introduce and move forward to create this feeling that some outside entity that parents don't trust is taking over control of parenting your child and the only way to win that control back is to vote our people into office and to pass because we will pass these bills that preserve your parental rights in the schools
0: mm-hmm. you know, no to, to to that end um since by my calculation since 1980 some segment of the political population has sought to other uh, certain groups based on perceived difference. I mean, we've had attacks on African-Americans, we've had attacks on women, we've had attacks on newly arriving immigrants of color, um, LGBTQI plus community. So that, I mean, that's a 42-year playbook. How, how long in your view will this strategy continue? And, and also to that end, does it, does it still have legs in
1: your view? That's a great question. I mean, honestly, I am surprised that we're seeing this come back up. Um, Especially, you know, we've seen attacks on the ability of same-sex couples to adopt, um, which really is a callback to these kind of gay panic, gay predator arguments that were trotted out in the 80s. Um, And that's really what's underlying uh, the advancement of these barriers to same-sex couples adopting children. it's going to keep going as long as it's effective. And it, I keep saying these attacks on LGBTQ plus rights are not happening in a vacuum. It's really part of a democracy issue where the, broad, the vast majority of the public supports LGBTQ equality. Um, a recent survey uh, from Public Religion uh, Research Institute found over 80%. Of the American public supports non-discrimination protections for LGBTQ+ plus people. That it, and we have majority support in every single state in the country, and across all religious viewpoints. And so, the the vast majority of the country supports equality. So, how do you have that living in concert with unprecedented attacks on equality? Well, you have an election system where the votes and the um, the ability to win an election is really in the hands of a minority, not the majority. And so in these states where we're seeing these horrible attacks, like I'll use Texas in, as an example. Um, Governor Abbott has done just truly horrific things to LGBTQ Texans most recently um, harnessing the child protection services apparatus of the state to go after parents of trans kids claiming that affirming your kid's gender identity is child abuse. This is something that he's doing. He, he rolled out this policy proposal before the primary because he was worried about somebody more to his right, more Trumpian than him, winning the primary. That's what motivated this. It's really speaking to a tiny, tiny minority of voters who have outsized power um, based on the ways that voting rights have been suppressed for minorities, based on the ways that uh, you know, looking at Congress, districts have been drawn um, and state legislatures as well uh, to really concentrate power in um, Republican hands and making it so that the only voices that matter are these conservative voices that are gonna be deciding who's holding those seats. To that end, uh, is there still states
0: where one uh, could be fired um, for the orientation and have no legal recourse? Has that been abolished or there's still states where that can happen?
1: So that's complicated. Um, what, in, the, in the Supreme Court's decision on uh, workplace protections, Bostock v. Clayton County, Georgia, um, the Supreme Court decided that Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, sex protections, protect against sexual orientation, generate any discrimination. So if, if Title VII applies to an employer, then you're protected. Uh, however, Title VII doesn't apply to employers that have fewer than 15 employees. And a lot of state non-discrimination laws try to cover up that gap by applying to smaller employers. And so in a state where they've done that um, and have uh, protections that are broader than Title VII, um, there could be a case where somebody is working for a smaller employer um, and that state law does not extend to sexual orientation and gender identity. And so that in those cases, they would not be covered unless the state either explicitly extended protections to LGBTQI plus folks. The other problem is the Williams Institute at US- UCLA did a study past Bostock to see the impact on discrimination and found LGBTQ plus workers were still experiencing really high levels of workplace discrimination. Um, so it's, it's going to take some time to make sure folks know their rights, that, work, that employers um, are upholding those rights, that courts are upholding those rights. Um, and there is a difference when you have state protections versus when you don't. Those are states that have already built the apparatus um, to enforce these protections, that are already informing employers that these protections exist. Um, and so, it it's definitely stronger when states also have these protections. Um, also, you know, we have we have a very different Supreme Court now than the court that enacted um, these protections, and it's been really concerning to hear and see some of the um, some of the signals for this court about where they intend to go on uh, precedent. Uh, for issues that impact LGBTQ plus folks, from marriage to workplace protections. Does, would,
0: uh, in your view, um, the, equality ga- the, I mean, the Equality Act close that gap? Um, and if so, what uh, talk a little bit about what the Equality Act would do.
1: Sure. Um, well, for starters, the Equality Act would take the ability of a future Supreme Court to undo these protections off the table because it would clearly and explicitly extend um non-discrimination protections in employment and housing um, in jury service credits um, all of these areas where court either courts have interpreted the law to cover lgbtq folks or um and also places where we don't have that ability so for example federally funded programs. There's no protections for sex discrimination there. So this would be new uh, and public accommodations don't currently protect against sex discrimination or sexual orientation or gender identity discrimination. Um, so it would be ex- adding protections where even courts can't find it um, and strengthening protections from court decisions to make sure future courts don't erode those protections. Um, so I. I it was critical when it was introduced in 2015, um, before we had the Bostock decision, it still remains a critical priority because we've got, um, we, we just can't rely on the courts to keep expanding rights. Um, it's, it's just not a, it's not a pro-equality um, judicial landscape like we've had in the past.
0: You, you mentioned this earlier, just in passing, I wanna come back to it, um... It's been well documented. Governor Ron DeSantis recently signed, the, uh, my view, a rather controversial bill that bans all instruction on sexual identity or gender in schools from kindergarten through third grade. It's called the Parental Rights and Education Bill. Critics call it the quote, Don't Say Gay Bill. Uh, explain why this legislation is problematic.
1: It makes it even harder for LGBTQ plus kids to find affirmation or inclusion in schools. Um, Both GLSEN and the Trevor Project have done a lot of research into school climate and the mental health of LGBTQ plus youth. And what they found time and again is and we found this also in our own analysis of complaints to the Department of Education around treatment of LGBTQ youth, bullying and harassment is still endemic. It is still pretty frequent and has really terrible mental health consequences for youth in the community. Um, There's also high rates of family exclusion and homelessness. LGBTQI plus youth are 120% more likely to be homeless than non-LGBTQ plus youth. And that comes from family rejection by and large. And so the status quo is a climate of kids who are incredibly vulnerable, who don't have many trusted adults to turn to, who really don't see themselves in their schools or curriculums. Like, you know, it's Fewer than 10% of curriculums even mention LGBTQ kids as existing. Um, And so that's the climate where this piece of legislation was introduced, is in a climate where kids are already having a really hard time. Um, What this does, or what this intends to do is make that even harder. Um, So for example, the Trevor Project found that just having one adult in your life that Recognizes your pronouns had a huge impact on decreasing suicidality among trans and gender nonconforming youth, and so this is a this is a law that's saying you can't do that. Basically, not just that. Um, you know, if you're a teacher in a same-sex relationship, can you mention your spouse? And the it, and this was a terribly written bill. If you're a heterosexual teacher, can you mention your spouse? Like there's definitely a intention behind the legislators in censoring and hiding the existence of LGBTQ people and providing a message to these kids that you don't belong, that you're wrong. Um, but again, it's so, it was so sloppily written that the impact, it's, it's in practice just going to cause a lot of confusion and result in people probably overly self-censoring to avoid um, repercussions under the bill. One thing that, I, that is interesting here, <laughs> you were talking about some of these previous fights that have already been fought in the 80s and 90s, and not just that, like, I work on global LGBTQ rights as well, and these so-called, like, no promo, homo, or censorship bills, We've seen a lot of that in Russia, in Chechnya, um, in countries like that that are using LGBTQ people as uh, um, as a target to create fear and stoke fear and um, and try to consolidate the authoritarian power of the leader. Like there, there is a reason uh, Vladimir Putin recently name checked jk rowling um that was a signal that he sees himself in the same boat as her as unfairly attacked for trying to preserve the the gender order or preserve the norms that people are comfortable with Hmm. so to 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 that end
0: uh, you also have the um, recent uh, i guess the best way to put is proposed uh legislation from colorado Representative uh, Lauren Burbert uh, who suggested that there should be an age limit of 21 before people are allowed to make life, quote unquote, life altering decisions about their sexuality and identity. Is, is that part of the, of, of the same thread as the don't say gay bill? Oh, definitely.
1: And it's, it's interesting how little these people think about themselves as having a sexual orientation or a gender identity. We all have that, even if you're heterosexual. That's a sexual orientation. If you're a cisgender woman, that's your, that's, that is, you know, and you identify as a woman, that is your gender identity. And so this really is stemming from uh, not understanding identity and also using, leaning into that lack of awareness or understanding. Uh, to create real harm for uh, children.
0: The subtext of this legislation, for me, that until one has reached the age of majority, they cannot articulate their identity, their identity, cognitively speaking. Um, I, I, I would imagine you have studies that that refute that supposition.
1: Of course. I mean, I, I ask people this all the time. When did you know you were straight? When did you know you, you were a man or a woman? It's not it. And these, I, this understanding of who you are and your identity is, and the development stages when that comes, is no different for people who are transgender or gay or bisexual. Um, And so the idea that this is something that's not suitable for children and needs to be limited to adult conversations um, is stigmatizing and it's also ludicrous and not uh, reflective of what we know about um, child development.
0: I I remember, uh, I guess I'm dating myself now, but I remember living in the San Francisco Bay Area growing up. Uh, I remember when Harvey Milk was elected And I remember him saying that uh, how important it was for uh, uh, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, et cetera, to come out to friends and family, because that's the only way you can create change. So so to that end, talk about the significance of of coming out uh,
1: to family and friends, especially for teens. Well, so I will point to the Gallup data. So the federal government does not really collect uh, data on LGBTQ people. Um, it's something that they're beginning to do more of, but you know, not counted in the census, not counted in any of the big population surveys. Um, and so we really turn to um, Gallup for figuring out our population estimates. And their most recent estimates on the LGBTQ population were the largest um, that they've found and they believe in the next couple of years, it'll be more than 10% of the population. And that really speaks to a level of acceptance, like social acceptance that creates an environment where people are comfortable coming out. Um, and among Gen Z, we see the largest numbers. Um, so for, for Gen Z, it's, general population 7.1% identify as LGBT. Gen Z identification is over 20%. Um, And they had the lowest non-response rate. Uh, Now we can't assume that everyone who chose not to respond to that question is in fact not comfortable with disclosing their sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, Some might just not understand the question or have any other reasons. But it is telling that Gen Z both has the highest percent of identification as LGBT and the lowest non-response rate to the question. Um, so this is a generation that came about, you know, after Obergefell, after <laughs> Lawrence v. Texas. I mean, it's, um, you blow Gen Z's mind when you tell them that, you know, we, we, it's not that long ago that um, these anti-sodomy laws were deemed unconstitutional. Uh, they haven't known anything but a more affirming, inclusive legal landscape and social landscape. And so you can see this comfort with coming out because there is this lack of stigma. The flip side of that is our own survey that we conducted found the highest rates of discrimination were reported by members of Gen Z. Um, So there's this double-edged sword where we've reached a certain point where, um, especially for younger generations, uh, particularly compared to baby boomers, where only 2% are identifying as LGBT, they feel more comfortable, but that we're not all the way there in terms of legal protections against discrimination.
0: And and some of the legislation that, that Um, but I'd say all of it from the Florida bill to the Texas law to uh, Congressman Robert's uh, proposed legislation is all designed to silence those voices to not come out and which would create for I'm, I'm, or I'm hearing you say it, that would create further harm to those communities.
1: Oh, yeah. And one of I think one of the most heart wrenching statistics that I've ever seen comes out of the CDC. Um, They found 35% of trans students reported attempting suicide in the year prior, not just thinking about it, but actually taking the steps to carry out an attempt. That is a shockingly high rate. And also we know from the Trevor Project research that what the interventions look like that decrease suicidality among this population. And it is having affirming adults, having affirming people in your school, having those people who aren't bullying you or are a safe harbor from bullies. It's really a matter of life and death for these kids. And so when I see these attacks, my heart just breaks. Um, because these are kids that need adults to be in their corner and not, not attacking them, not using them for political gains.
0: This is a a personal metric for me, um, but I, I think it's safe to say it's been shared by others that the great nations measure are measured by how they treat the most vulnerable in their population. If there is a systematic attempt to score political points by using vulnerable po- populations, and as in this case, the LGBTQ plus communities, what does it say about the health of American democracy in your view?
1: It's, it's very concerning. Um, we, the Biden administration um, just held a summit for democracy uh, and has committed to the next year um, advancing democracy at home and abroad. And it's, we're not doing that great. Um, There's a lot of research that demonstrates that LGBTQ plus inclusion, inclusion of other marginalized populations, as you said, is a barometer for the health of a democracy. Um, Unfortunately, the US is not doing great there. There's something called the FNM Global Barometer um, that the administration has um, also been using, which rates how countries are doing in terms of fulfilling obligations to ensure that their LGBTQI plus citizens are full citizens and able to contribute to the benefit from democratic institutions. The U.S. scored basically a C minus a C if our country were a school. We got a 70% in basic human rights for LGBTQI plus people. Um, and so we definitely have work that we need to do as a country to improve the treatment of minority populations um, because that is an indicator of, health, of democratic health.
0: Up to, to that end, Is is there a so-called gay agenda beyond the commitment to liberty and equality as articulated in the Declaration of Independence and codified by the Constitution's 14th Amendment? Your thoughts?
1: I think that is the agenda. LGBTQ plus people in this country are parents, our students, our teammates, our coworkers. And we just want to be able to live and provide for our loved ones in the same way as everybody else. Um, There is not some nefarious secret gay agenda. As you said, the gay agenda is really just being treated equally um, and living the same as our friends and neighbors.
0: Sherita Gruber, Center for American Progress, I wanna thank you uh, for joining me today on The Public Morality. Much appreciated, much appreciated.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Stay tuned as I speak with Wilfred Coggington III about the Electoral College on the Public Morality. Welcome back. The Electoral College, a uniquely American phenomenon, has on occasion five times to be exact, selected a president who received fewer votes than his opponent. Though rare in America's Democratic Republican form of government, it has occurred twice in the six elections in the 21st century. There have been numerous calls to abolish Electoral College, which would necessitate a constitutional amendment. Even tweaks to the current system void of a constitutional amendment would require states to relinquish the benefits they currently enjoy. To discuss the Electoral College, I'm joined by NYU Law Professor Wilfred Coggington III. Professor Wilfred Coggington, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank
2: you. Thank you so much for having me.
0: How did the framers of the Constitution back in 1787 decide that the Electoral College uh, was the method of selecting a president?
2: Yeah, so uh, it wasn't so much a clear cut decision, uh, so much as to have just stumbled upon it. Um, Basically, when the framers were thinking about how we're going to get our chief executive, our president, they were kind of, their head was kind of stuck between two Georges. Um, They, in one sense, knew that they were going to get George Washington as the first president. And at the same time, they wanted to think about ensuring that whoever the president would be thereafter would not become King George, the monarch. And so what they were, they threw out a bunch of different ideas. They had ideas um, where they didn't, uh, where they would have Congress select a member, um, but they thought that that might violate the separation of powers. You want to keep the legislative branch and the executive branch separately. They had designs, where potentially um, the governors or state legislators would choose the president, but then they also saw fault with that. There was actually um, uh, a proposition to have the president elected by popular majorities. But the framers were uh, particularly disdainful of uh, the excesses of democracy, as they uh, called it. And so basically, you get this whole debate going on intermittently throughout the Constitutional Convention in the 1700s, and they end up with this system because it's kind of like the least disagreeable amongst them. And it quickly turned and showed itself to be problematic and not well thought out. I'm going to
0: pick up on something you, you, you just said about the two Georges, uh, because Constitution was signed in uh, September 7, 1789. Uh, the Electoral College was thrown into the Committee of Postponed Matters in August of 1787. How much of that compromise was based on the fact that everyone assumed George Washington would indeed be the first president, and thus allowed them to do, which has become a profoundly American phenomenon on crisis situations, which is kick the can down the road.
2: Yeah, I, I think there's a lot to that. You know, it's not. Yeah, entirely clear um, what we have in terms of the history about this. We have some, a lot of notes from James Madison, Uh, notably James Madison was the longest surviving of those framers, and he had tinkered with his notes towards the end of his life when everyone else was dead, um, perhaps to make him look better on questions regarding federalism and slavery. Um, But we do have those notes. We have some other records. Um, So you can't really tell the intent. Nobody says, hey, this is going to be George Washington. But that's pretty much, that's like the elephant in the room. And in fact, George Washington was in the front of the room presiding over the Constitutional Convention. So he was the proverbial elephant. Um, And so yeah, I think The framers were of the mindset that we could sort of see how this sorts itself out with this one and sort of think about it afterwards. And lo and behold, they had to come back to the Electoral College after the election of eighteen hundred.
0: Do you consider the Electoral College possessing racist underpinnings, as as many have uh, have offered?
2: Yes. So um Initially, the electoral college was conceived of um, to accord with and accommodate racial racial slavery. Um, That is mainly because there was the Three-Fifths Compromise and the Connecticut Compromise. So the idea that we divided our legislator into two chambers, the House and the Senate, um, that was a a compromise between big states and small states. But how we counted individuals for political power in the House was a compromise between slave and non-slave states. And the idea there was that we sort of... um, uh in in sort of incorporated the three-fifths compromise and so it was to say that black people would count in the south which is where you had over 95 percent of your slaves they would count as uh 60 percent of themselves so the south which was obviously not giving black people the right to vote would count them in towards and towards getting their political clout in the house of representatives. And because the electoral college is based on that same mathematical formula with the house and the Senate, then that three fifths compromise was baked in there. And so that showed very quickly early on. Um, Four of our first five presidents were not only slaveholders, but slaveholders from Virginia. And without the um, the Three has Compromise, you know, Virginia would have had the same political power in the Electoral College and in uh, the House of Representatives as uh, Pennsylvania, but it got so much more in terms of power there because they were counting their slaves. Um, and so, yeah, slavery was baked in early on. And so the way that it plays out now is it just persists. One is that it's clear racism played a role. I mean, you can just tell by um, efforts to get rid of the Electoral College. In the 1969, 1970, uh, when Congress was being held, there was a proposal to get rid of the Electoral College. It was supported by 80% of Americans. It received two-thirds support in the House of Representatives, which is enough to, if the Senate acted accordingly, would have sent it out to the states to be ratified as a constitutional amendment. But instead that uh, proposal was filibustered in the Senate um, by the likes of Strom Thurmond and his Southern segregationist um, compatriots. Um, And that's because they knew what we know now the, the, the sort of winner-take-all system that we use with the Electoral College across the country um, allows a, a substantial minority, Black people in particular at this, uh, this juncture, to uh, have their votes sort of wasted or watered down to mean nothing. Because they're a substantial minority in these places, upwards of 30-35% in some of these states, but that's never going to be enough to uh, make your will have effect where you have a winner take all system. So these substantial minorities would basically have their power diluted. And so the electoral college continues to have that sort of effect in in states across the country and particularly in the South on black people.
0: I'm assuming that you agree with um, Yale professor Kilomar who's been on the public rally several times uh, when he stated uh, Thomas Jefferson in the election of eighteen hundred, which you referenced, also referenced earlier, metaphorically rode into the executive mansion on the backs of slaves. I, I'm assuming you would agree with that comment.
2: Yeah, and I'll tell you why I agree with that, and, and it, not just because it's a fantastic turn of uh, phrase, because but it's so apt. Um, what happened in the election of eighteen hundred was everybody who sort of familiar with the Hamilton musical, knows that the Electoral College failed disastrously then because um, it produced a tie between purported running mates, Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr. But Thomas Jefferson, who was the vice president, the outgoing vice president at the time, was running really against John Adams, who was, you know, not a slaveholder and the only non-slaveholder in the first five presidents. Now, uh, because of that slave boost that Southern states got in the Electoral College, as I described earlier, Thomas Jefferson actually edged. Uh, James, er, er, uh, John Adams. So without those extra bonus electors that the South got because it held slavery as uh, slaves, um, John Adams actually would have won. John Adams would have been re-elected, and we would have had a northerner from Massachusetts who ultimately, you know, was an abolitionist. Um, we would have had very different policies. We would have had very different appointments. It would have looked very different on the Supreme Court, where you had the similarity in terms of having the slave power sort of dominating the early parts of our country in jurisprudence. So yeah, Thomas Jefferson uh, did metaphorically ride uh, into the White House on the backs of slaves.
0: You know, it's rather ironic, You, you on, on two occasions so far, you've mentioned that four uh, of the first five uh, presidents were slaveholders, and the one exception being John Adams and, in fact, the sixth president, if, I, if my memory serves me correctly, was John Quincy Adams, his son. So the sixth president was not not only not a slaveholder, but also an Adams. So the Adams are sort of holding up in the first six, they're sort
2: of holding up the marker for the rest of the nation. <laughs> Yeah, certainly. Um, but I, and just to sort of put that even in more context, John Adams and John Quincy Adams, his son, were the only like two of the few who did not have a direct interest and and, and um, um, effort to expand and, and support slavery. You know, for that was eight years that they had together because neither of them were reelected. Um, and that's eight years of the first you know, um, um, 70 or so before we got to the Civil War. In that same period, you had about 50 plus years of Southern slaveholders and, and slave sympathizers holding the White House. So eight versus 50, that is quite the disparity. Um, but yeah, um, that, the, the Adams were kind of holding it down for the uh, non-slave power in the early part of American history.
0: Well, 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 there's a spin on it. The other irony about the Adams is is both of them sort of draw into our larger theme, our conversation together about the Electoral College, because John Quincy Adams, if I'm not mistaken, was the first president to be victorious without winning the popular vote. Hence this, you know, quirky Electoral College uh, system.
2: Yeah, and I was going to just like explain how that worked. Um, okay. And so basically what you had happen in the election where um, John Quincy Adams was running against uh, Andrew Jackson at the time, actually. Andrew Jackson won more votes than the next highest vote getters. But the way that the constitution was set up was to have, create this, what they call a contingent election. So if nobody wins a majority of the electors, then the the decision goes to the House of Representatives. And there, which is even more fundamentally anti-democratic, each, um, each state is represented as a delegation um and they each get one vote so it doesn't matter how large the state is what the population is it's only going to get one vote in this contingent election where there's no majority electoral college winner and so in that um there was what they called the corrupt uh, corrupt bargain where um john quincy adams was given the votes in support of other candidates who were running in in um in exchange for positions in his cabinet Uh, And so this was something that um, Jackson really begrudged um, and he ended up uh, winning the next election against John Quincy Adams and and winning the majority of electoral votes. But at the time, that contingent election was what actually resulted in JQA winning the presidency.
0: Talk, if you would, about um, a sort of contemporary argument that the Electoral College Benefit states with smaller populations. Expand that argument, if you would, sir.
2: Yeah. Um, so the the idea is quite simple. Um, you know, if we were a direct, if we were sort of represented in the Electoral College or in the presidency selection process, whatever it was, uh, proportionate to our population in the states, um, you know, the bigger states would have more clout and the smaller states would have less. But because of the way that the formula is created for the Electoral College, it's based on your representation in the House of Representatives and in the Senate, um, small states automatically get two votes. you know, to uh, reflect the fact that they have two senators. So a state like Montana, for example, or Wyoming, even smaller, which has about 600,000 people, they get an automatic two votes plus the one that they get no matter what for being a mem- uh, having a member of Congress. Um, and so that just enhances their power right to start. Whereas a state like California gets that same two that, um, that Wyoming gets. And plus there's, you also have to just think about the fact that you get a a base one, and that actually adds for some cases. So we have a disparity between 600,000 people in Wyoming and nearly 40 million in California, even that base level one is going to distort um, uh, Wyoming's power. Um, so yeah, there is a benefit added in there for small states. but that's not the only benefit. see the, the that's the thing. It, it's sometimes arbitrary sometimes it's baked in. So there's benefits for swing states. and the way that this plays out is swing states determine who's going to be election uh, who's going to be elected right? Candidates don't go to non-swing states to campaign. They go there, maybe they come to New York to raise money. They'll go to California and Texas to raise money. But they're not going there um, for the general election to... You know get support from people because they know that the, that's pretty much in the bag and so if you look at the spendings in the campaign visits you're looking at well over 90 percent of all presidential resources and presidential campaign resources being spent uh, spent in a handful of eight or nine states or so that are going to determine the outcome of the presidency and so it gives these states that sometimes don't even really look like america this outsized power in determining who's going to be the next president of the United States. So the way that they electoral all colleges, it just kind of distorts some of uh, the, the power of the American people in the selection of the presidency based on some things that are quite random and some things that are pretty uh, static. But in either case, it doesn't reflect like the majority will, or it doesn't have to.
0: One of the challenges, it seems to me in, in our current debate, and um, and I'm Expanded on based on your remarks, sir, uh, is the difference between what I'm calling what's in the best interest of American democracy versus what's in the best interest for one's immediate self interest. And I, I'm going to harken back to you mentioned the early uh, 1970s. Nixon had won a close election, he had lost a close election in 68. George Wallace's third party uh, introduction had Nixon on uh, on board for supporting the Abolishment Electoral College. Birch Bayh, a senator from Indiana, originally recently got involved because Johnson was worried about wayward electors. And then you talked about the immediate self-interest of Southern senators and, and members of uh, uh, Southern senators who, who saw that their political power would be diminished. Isn't that you take away the players, you take away the specifics, but in the larger sense, isn't that still the rub that we're having about about any attempts to abolish the electoral college between what's best for American democracy versus the immediate self-interest of some?
2: Yes, I, I I think so, right? I think there are two things that are really playing into why the, the issue is so sticky. One is, I, I think, um, exactly what you're getting at that a state seems to uh, believe that they're going to be disempowered, right? It is in their uh, tactical and strategic advantage to maintain a disproportionate amount of power in selecting the president, even if it's disproportionate to the amount of people that they have. And so this is bizarre in in many ways. One, because You know, we don't have other systems where you use like an electoral college structure. In any other election, we go with the winner, the majority winner. That's just kind of how things work. Um, And so it's bizarre to elevate this idea that we should kind of create this contraption to dilute the power of the majority on any number of reasons um, that are either contrived now or said at the past that just don't pan out in, in, in any event. Um, and so it's sticky because, you know, no state wants to lose its ability to have more influence in the Electoral College in determining the presidency. And there are enough of them to sort of, you know, um, veto a constitutional amendment, potentially, or at least um, in their state, de- in their delegations to Congress to block any amendment being considered in Congress in general going forward and attaining the, the supermajority needed to go out to the states. But the other part, I think, is the fact that the Electoral College has, in recent times, benefited Republicans. And the last two times where the president who lost the ele- uh, lost a popular vote but won the Electoral College, it was a Republican. And so now you have people in those states that are uh, less popular or less populated, um, often whiter, and um, often lean Republican, see these these three things in their interests as a reason to not get out the Electoral College. Um, but it's not clear that the Electoral College will only benefit Democrats, I mean, uh, Republicans. It's conceivable that it could benefit Democrats, too, if you have a close vote. And that was nearly the case in 2004 when John Kerry was running against Bush. If you had switched some votes in Ohio, just a, a, a few thousands, um, you would have changed the outcome of the Electoral co- I and mean, the Electoral a contest where the winner of the electoral college would have lost the popular vote. And so that's there, there's just a few things that are kind of playing together that keeps this a sticky issue now. Um, but hopefully that's not something that people sort of, Are psychologically attached to in the future. You know, really, the the sweep of democracy in American uh, history and American constitutional history has been towards incorporating the will of the majority more. We've had so many constitutional amendments, the 15th Amendment. We've had the 14th Amendment, which has been um, interpreted by courts to allow like the one person, one vote principle, and the 19th Amendment, which is enfranchised women, Um, the the 24th Amendment, getting rid of the poll tax, the 26th Amendment, lowering the voting age to cover 18-year-olds. The sweep of American democracy has undoubtedly been to incorporate the will of the majority, even where the framers were sort of skeptical of democracy. And that's because we've come down to The agreement that we have political equality, that my vote and my voice should matter as much as your vote and your voice. And there just seems to be no good reason to me for why that wouldn't hold in the one contest for the one person who is supposed to fundamentally represent every American it just doesn't really make sense to me why we keep the system we have. And therefore all of the efforts, I support them, um, whether they are uh, constitutional efforts or efforts including through the state compact, including the national uh, popular vote compact, to try to work through this problem and get it to ensure that our, our president and our commander in chief is always going to have the support of the majority. Well, f- finally, I'm, I'm going to just throw out one last conundrum for
0: you to play around with. A number of scholars, notably uh, Norm, Norman Ornstein at the American Enterprise Institute, cite that by 2040, 70% of the population will live in 20 states. And Now, assuming that's true, it would mean that 30% live in 20 states. And uh, I mean, so the, the 30% will, um, will elect 70% of the senators, how might this population impact uh allow the current Im- uh, impact, the current
2: imbalance of the Electoral College? Yeah, that would fundam- I mean, it would distort it even further. Um, and basically, we'd be moving towards this point where it is a deeply entrenched minority rule right? Because that would mean, one, because the Senate would be even more uh, disproportionately favoring these unpopulated states. And so you they'd have outsized power in these states that have very few people. That in turn affects the Electoral College, because that means that they have outsized power in that too, because the math is based on the same thing. And then when you consider the fact that the president Can the uh, Senate choose the Supreme Court members? Then you get a point where you have a minority in the electoral space, the president and the the Senate, choosing an unaccountable life-tenured set of justices that decide the final questions of constitutional uh, contests. And so what you'd be doing is entrenching. And furthermore, if we take into account which this uh, anti-democratic Supreme Court has said, um, you can't Uh, bring claims of political and partisan gerrymandering to the Supreme Court, then you also have the possibility of getting an entrenched minority in the House of Representatives. And so if we get to this point where we have all of our legislator and all of our uh, executives and all of our judiciary at the highest levels of government, all with entrenched minorities and perpetuating themselves, then that's not a democracy anymore. Then we are fundamentally an anti-democratic society and something will have to be done. I can't imagine that holding.
0: Professor Wilford Coshington III, thank you, sir, uh, for joining me today on The Public Morality. Much appreciated. It is completely
2: my pleasure. Thank you, and have a fantastic day.
0: The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to The Public Morality on WSNC can now listen on its app, Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click Open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama for allowing us to broadcast the Public Morality at their studios. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.